For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17. We're not going to do all of those chapters, but um, really these chapters center around what some call the Abrahamic Covenant, which stands as a central event, really, in the history of uh, God's salvation. And it starts with this guy, Abraham. So let's look at Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, his name before God renamed him Abraham, he said, leave your country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. So a little bit of background information on this guy, Abram. First of all, he lived about 2000 BC. So he was, you know, this is about 4,000 years old. And Abram lived in this area, the Mesopotamian basin, uh, in a town called Ur of the Chaldeans. And so this would be somewhere in modern day Iraq. And so Abram came from a polytheistic home. It's not clear if he actually believed in one God. But the Lord came to him and called him to go and leave his native country and go. And so you can imagine how difficult that would be. This God comes to you in a vision, tells you to just leave all of your security, everything that you know, including your family. And he says, go. And he doesn't really give too much in terms of direction. He says, I'm going to show you where you're going to go. He doesn't specify where he's going. He doesn't say, you're going to Seattle, Washington, out west. He says, just start moving in that direction, go west, and then I'll direct you along the way. So put yourself in Abram's shoes. I mean, this would be really difficult for God to just say, okay, I want you to get up. I want you to displace your family. I want you to uproot your entire life. And go in this direction. And by the way, I'll tell you where you're going in a little bit. You know, I think this grates against our desire to ruthlessly control our lives. You know, we want to try to direct our own lives. We have plans for where we want to go. And God consistently tries to pry the, contr the controls of finger off the steering wheel of our lives and to try to get him to take over. And, um, you know, it's very difficult, especially when we don't know what God's plans are, when he doesn't elaborate what those are to us. And, um, you know, I was thinking about how uh, when my son was about three years old, we would uh, do this thing where every week we would go out and uh, just spend time together. And so we had our regular routine that we did for about a year. And it was the same thing over and over again. We would go to McDonald's down on campus, get a $1 parfait, and just walk around campus, right? Real simple. And so I remember the first time that we did this, I, ex I was trying to, like, get him excited about the idea that we were going to go to McDonald's and do this stuff. And I was like, you know, Julius, we're going to go to McDonald's. And he's like, who's old McDonald's? And I'm like, no, no, no. 
McDonald's is a restaurant that, you know, it's a fast food chain that largely contributes to adult obesity. <laughs> and he's like, what's obesity? I'm like, okay, never mind, okay? <laughs> and so on the car ride there, you know, he's asking a million questions. He's like, when are we going to see old McDonald's? What's a parfait? And I'm just like, <laughs> at one point I was just like, look, okay? Um, I know this is going to be good. I know where we're going. You're going to have a good time, I promise. Okay? And so the point wasn't that he had to know what we were going to do. The point was that I knew what we were going to do and that I had a plan and it was going to be good, whether he understood it or not. And so in the same way, you know, God often doesn't explain things to us partly because we wouldn't understand if he laid out our entire lives and said, this is the direction you're going. The point isn't that we know where we're heading, it's that he knows where we're going. And so, in this case, you know, God doesn't just call Abram away from something. He doesn't just call him away from Ur. He actually calls him to something. And we'll see that that's really the same with us. He says in verse 2, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. So he calls Abram to a promise. He gives him a vision for what's going to happen in his life. And he elaborates. He says, first of all, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And that entails three things. The first, that I will bless you and make you famous. You know, Abram, although he was probably a wealthy person in Ur, was probably not a top official or, you know, a prominent person. And yet God says, people are going to remember you. You're going to be famous because of the work that I do through you. Secondly, he says that you're going to be a blessing to others and that all families on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, he's going to make a great nation will be birthed from Abraham's descendants. But because of that promise, God would bless the nations. Little did Abraham know that this would entail the savior of the entire human race tracing his lineage back to Abraham. Third, he says that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. So he promises Abraham protection. He says, I'm going to call you to go west. And, you know, certainly there are going to be marauders. There's going to be hard times ahead. You may face danger. But I'm going to protect you. I'm going to preserve you. And anybody who tries to cross you, I'm going to, you know, treat them with contempt. And so he gives Abram this incredible promise. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him, his uh, nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarah, or Sarai, and later she's named Sarah, his nephew Lot, and all of his wealth, his livestock, all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, and then he headed for the land of Canaan. So verse 5 gives us a little bit of information about Abram that he was probably 
a wealthy individual because it said that he had livestock and that he had a large number of servants in his household. In the ancient world, when you had large herds of livestock, that was a, a, a type of wealth that you had. And so it's surprising. You know, Abram had so much going for him in Ur and then later in Haran. And yet he was willing to trust God's promise to go. Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. There he set up camp beside the oak of Moreh. At that time, the area was inhabited by the Canaanites. So there was one little detail that God didn't add here. Okay, so you, I'm going to give you and your descendants this great land. And um, the catch is, it's inhabited. People actually live there. You know, imagine if God was like, I got this great place for you. You're going to move there. And uh, you're going to occupy it. It's called Wisconsin. You're like, but God, people live there already. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of that, right? Not to mention, we're told that he set up camp there. He didn't go there, build an, an incredible home, you know, set down roots. He actually set up camp. And from the rest of the narrative in Genesis, we're told that he actually lived as a nomad, wandering throughout the course of his life. Indeed, he never actually settled fully into the promised land, that he never actually uh, bought a plot of land until his wife Sarah died and bought a small enough plot just to bury her. And so I think it's worth evaluating Abraham's call and trying to figure out what we can learn about faith from this. I think, first of all, we can say that Abraham left behind his security. Ur represented his security. And, you know, a lot of times God will call us away from our security, whether that be a relationship that brings us comfort, whether that's an aspiration that we've invested our entire lives into. God will call us away from our security because he knows that these things that we place our security in, that we don't have that in addition to our desire to follow God, but that often we place our security in those things instead of God. And he knows that that's a trap. That putting anything, you know, putting your security in anything other than God himself represents a false sense of security. Things that can be instantly taken away from us. And so sometimes God will call on us to let go of things. To let go of that sense of security and to reach out to the promise that he's given to us to provide for us. You know, I was thinking about when I was younger, one of the scariest things that I accomplished was um, conquering the monkey bars, right? I mean, that's like a rite of passage when you're a little kid. And so I remember, you know, I would stand on the platform and grab the first bar. My dad would just be standing there for, you know, support and some coaching, and, uh, you know, so I'd grab the first bar and then I'd grab the second one and I'd just be swinging there and I'd look down and, you know, I would get terrified because there was this, you know, what looked like a 50 foot drop to my death. <laughs> and so I would just seize up and, you know, my dad would have to help me off of the, the monkey bars onto the platform again. 
And so it seemed like week after week we would try it. We would go to the monkey bars and, you know, I would, I would grab one bar and get stuck. And, um, you know, finally my dad just was like, look, this is, you, you need to learn how to do this and conquer your fear and let go of that one arm and reach out for the other one. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. You're 15 years old. You know, sometimes that's the way it is with our faith. You know, we need to let go of control. We need to let go of our sense of security in order to reach out to the promise that God has given to us in order to advance in our faith. You know, the other thing that we notice about this is that he actually never received the promised land while he was alive. He lived as a traveling foreigner in a distant land. And so he never fully received the promise while he was alive, and yet he strived to grasp on in faith to the promise that God had given to him. You know, really at first glance, you might say that Abraham's life looked like a completely wasted life. You know, a wasted life where he took way too many risks. He failed to maximize the wealth, the comfort, and the luxury that he could have had in Ur. You know, by the world's estimation, he would have been a loser. A guy who completely wasted his potential by following God. And yet, when you look at it from a different perspective, you know, when God estimates that our lives really matter, that counts for a lot much more so than human standards. I wanted to do a little poll. Let me ask you this. How many of you guys have ever heard of Naplanum, the first king of Larza, from 1961 to 1940 B.C.? Raise your hand. Don't lie. This guy was uh, one of the first recorded kings in Mesopotamia. Probably one of Abraham's contemporaries, regarded as, you know, this great king, diplomat, wealthy beyond comparison in this area. And yet, none of us know who he is. Meanwhile, you look at Abraham's life, his life really appears as a blip on the radar of history. And yet, when we look at the impact that he had even today, half the world, claims either its spiritual or physical lineage back to him. When God estimates that your life matters, that counts for a lot. Even if the rest of the world says that you've wasted your life. You know, imagine what his close friends and family must have said when he announced that he was going to go west. You know, they're sitting around at dinner. He's like, I got an announcement going west and they're like where he's like it's complicated there's this god he came to me and he was like go this way and they're like well so you don't even know what you're going to do no that must have been a real shock they must have been like you know I, you can incorporate god into all the other gods that we have here in earth why, why do you have to listen to him why why do you have to go too far by following this God. You're getting a little fanatical here. 
You know, I'm sure that many of us probably experience this as we're trying to live for God. We're trying to live radically to serve Him. And yet our family and friends are just like, why are you doing this? Why are you giving up all of these opportunities? Why are you changing your plans that you've had ever since you were in middle school or high school and now moving in this other direction? Because this God stuff doesn't make any sense. And yet, we're told that he clung on to God's promise. He trusted that what God was going to provide was much better than anything that he could ever amass in Ur. Whether that was prominence, whether that was wealth, whether that was a sense of his own security, or really his own sense of false security, he clung on to God's promise. Hebrews 11, verse 14 and 15 elaborates, obviously people who say such things are looking forward to a country that they call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. The author of Hebrews points out, it's not like Abraham was lost. He knew his way back home to Ur. And yet he never went back. Because he trusted in God's promise. You know, many of us, we may be following God and we may be thinking to ourselves, I don't know if it's really worth following God. Maybe I should go back to my old way of life. Maybe you're holding out for a plan B in case this doesn't work. You know, when you look at Abraham's life, he trusted in the promise of God. And that caused him to really live his life for God without ever thinking or turning back to Ur. Well, There's sort of an interlude between this and the next time God comes to Abraham and actually promises, sort of reiterates this promise that he would make Abraham into a great nation. Uh, This famine came upon the land, which actually drove Abraham and his family into Egypt. And I think this is really important for us to like examine details about some of these prominent figures in the Old Testament, their details of their life, because sometimes when you study their lives, it almost seems like they're these perfect people who never had any problems. In this case, when Abraham actually goes into Egypt, many of the people there took notice of how beautiful Sarah was, which is kind of odd because I think she was like in her mid-60s. Kind of reminds me of uh, that line from uh, Friday, if you've ever seen that movie. The older the berry, the sweeter the juice, you know. (laughs) But um, so... Abraham was actually really afraid of what would happen. And uh, so he told, he told Sarah, he's like, look, if anybody asks you who you are, tell them that you are my sister. Otherwise, they're going to kill me. And so Pharaoh actually takes Sarah into his court and, and it seems like marries her. And he suffers all of these plagues until he finds out that actually Sarah was married And he returns Sarah back to Abraham. And Abraham's like, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just kidding. (laughs) So, you know, Abraham, this, this giant of the faith in the Old Testament, I mean, he was, at least in this episode, a total weakling. He was cowering. He, he was afraid to defend his own wife, pawning her off as his sister. You know, he didn't trust that God would protect him that he would come through on his promise. 
And so we see things like this where Abraham at times stumbles, but the overall picture is faith. Okay, Genesis 15. This represents the second iteration of the Abrahamic covenant. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Don't be afraid, for I will protect you and reward your reward will be great. But Abram said, O oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant of my household, will inherit all of my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will have to be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son on your own, and he will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, he said, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. You know, this was at a time when there wasn't a lot of light pollution. They're out in the desert and you didn't have smog. You know, where I grew up in Chicago, it's like even on a clear night, you'd be able to make out maybe 10 stars. You know, if you're from Cleveland, forget about it, right? (laughs) But, you know, if you go to like, somewhere up north in a rural part of, like, you know, Canada. And um, you see a clear night. I mean, the stars are just magnificent, innumerable. And so God was trying to communicate to Abram. He says, look at all the stars. That's how numerous all of your descendants are going to be. And we're told in verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. That verse right there in 6, the New Testament quotes that numerous times as a way to demonstrate that it's always been by faith. Notice, it doesn't say that Abraham believed God and he was a really good person and that's why God counted him as righteous. It says that he counted him as righteous because of his faith. You know, some people think that Yeah, in the Old Testament times, you had to, like, perform the sacrificial system. You had to be a really good person, and then God would forgive you. No. It's always been by faith. Keep in mind the chronology. This was hundreds of years before the Old Testament law even appeared, the sacrificial system. And yet God counted Abram as righteous. In other words, he gave him a right standing as a result of his faith. And that's really what God's looking for. He's looking for saving faith. Trust in his promise. Trust in him to provide what we can't provide for ourselves. Well, then the Lord told him, he says, I, the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, have given you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, Sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I'll even possess it? The Lord told him, he says, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham presented all these to him and killed him. Then he cut each animal down the middle, laid the halves side by side, but he didn't cut the birds in half, probably because they were too small. This is where things get a little weird, okay? As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. And the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they'll be oppressed as slaves 400 years. Speaking about the future exile into Egypt. He says, but I'll punish the nation that enslaves them 
And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. And after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land of Canaan, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. In other words, we need to make sure that the Amorites uh, are ripe for destruction. Sounds kind of savage. But if you study ancient Canaanite religion, some of the things that they used to do really would fall into the category of unconscionable acts of evil. Whenever they would uh, worship their deities, they would create these bronze sculptures that they would heat up. And then what they would do is they would take small children, their own children, and throw them onto the hands of these statues and sear them to death as a sacrifice. And so after 400 years of God probably sending people to call them to repent, he finally said, that's it. And so that corresponded to the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt and into the promised land to take over. Well, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass through the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day. and He said, I've given this land to your descendants. This part right here is very interesting because what it's describing is actually an ancient Near Eastern covenant. Look at Jeremiah 34, verse 17 and 18. These are, this is probably a few hundred years later. God says, because you have broken the terms of our covenant, you know, God commanded Judah to uh, free all the slaves in Israel. I will cut you apart just as you cut apart the calf when you walk between its halves to solemnize your vows. So that gives us at least a picture of what this ceremony entailed. It's, it's symbolized that when we cut these animals in half, when two parties walk through these cut animals, it represented, may this happen to us if either one of us breaks our end of the agreement. And so it was a way of solemnizing this contract or agreement between two people. But notice in verse 17, it says that Abram saw this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcass. God himself walked through by himself without Abram. And this indicates that God made an unconditional agreement with Abraham. In other words, even when you make mistakes, even when you stumble and fall, even when you remain faithless at times, I'm still going to come through. And that's really the way God is with us. He gives us these unconditional agreements, promises. Obviously, the greatest one that we, we can turn to is the new covenant that God gives to us through Jesus Christ. That uh, he promises never to leave us or forsake us once we receive the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus that we can receive through faith. Well, God reiterates this another time in Genesis 17, 7 and elaborates a little bit more. He says, I'll confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is an everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of descendants, the God of your descendants after you. So he says, it's an everlasting covenant. It's something that's never going to be overturned because God himself made this oath by himself. 
And even, you know, thousands, uh, a couple thousand years later, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the nation of Israel's role in God's plan of salvation, he turns back to this original covenant. In Romans 11, verse 28, he says, Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, yet they are still the people God loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. In other words, this is an eternal covenant that we get to participate in as non-Jewish people. And yet God still has chosen the Jewish people to work through. Okay. So, as we move forward in the narrative, God gives this promise. He tells him to leave everything that he felt like was his security. And then now he has to wait for this promise that God would come through with a son. You know, one complicating factor was that Sarah was barren. Forgot to mention that part. She was never able to have kids. Not to mention, you know, she was probably, at this time, about 75 years old. So she wasn't like a spring chicken either, right? And then you have the wait, where, you know, year after year, they are awaiting this promise that God would come through, that he would produce this child miraculously. And uh, I don't know, you know, if, if you're like me, but I have a really hard time waiting on things. It's so agonizing, especially when God is the one who's making me wait, because a lot of times there's a lot of mystery, a lot of fog as I'm moving forward trying to figure out his will. And so it's very difficult. And so... Um, Abraham and Sarah both had to wait while cooperating and playing their part. Ten years pass of trying. And they decide, you know, maybe we were confused. Maybe what God said was that you are going to bear this child of the promise. And so maybe what we can do is you could take my Egyptian handmaiden, uh, Hagar, sleep with her, and then we'll have a child. And that wasn't really that weird because a lot of times a patriarch would take one of his concubines and actually conceive a child with him, and that that child could actually become an heir. So it wasn't like this was out of the ordinary. But then, you know, God comes back to him and said, no, 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 no. The son that you bore, Ishmael from Hagar, he's not the one. I want to make it very clear, as I did the last couple times, that this descendant would actually come from you and Sarah. Well, then 14 more years pass, and God assures Abraham that he and Sarah will have a son, and he'll come from Sarah's body. And, you know, Abraham laughs. He's just like, how is that even possible? I'm nearly 100 years old. My wife, she's like 95 years old. I mean, that just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. You know, 100-year-old people aren't supposed to be having kids. And 100-year-old people aren't supposed to be doing the things that could conceive children, right? I mean, it's just like, I'm sure things were getting really difficult at this point. Well, months later, God tells Abraham and Sarah that the next time he comes, that Sarah will actually be with child. And it's funny because uh, 
in the narrative, you know, God sends these messengers to tell, give this birth announcement. And um, we're told that one of the messengers said, you know, I'm going to return to you this time next year and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. So she laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn out old woman like me enjoy such a pleasure, especially when my master is so old, my husband? Then the Lord said, Abram, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. And God said, no, you did laugh. (laughs) Trying to get one over on the God of the universe? What are you thinking? Well, against all hope, against all hope, they are actually able to conceive, and just like the messengers predicted, they were able to have a child. And it's funny because guess what God says to Abraham? He says, I want you to name your son Isaac, which means laughter. So guess who got the last laugh in this, right? (laughs) You know, this must have been really difficult. All those years of waiting, you know, the unsavory task of having to try to fulfill God's promise. You know, 200-year-old people doing things they shouldn't be doing. And yet, you know, Abraham persevered. And really, that's what this represents, a remarkable story of perseverance. And it really highlights the way that God grows our faith. A lot of times what God will do is he'll give us a promise And he'll call us to take a a step of faith where we're currently at. And then he'll make us wait for a little bit. And then he'll fulfill his promise or he'll answer our prayer. And then our faith actually grows. And so it turns out that this waiting process actually was a way for God to refine and grow Abraham's faith. You know, when you look at Ishmael and Isaac, They really become two symbols of carrying out God's will, two different ways of carrying out God's will. You know, when you look at Galatians 4, verse 22 and 23, Paul says, the scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his servant wife and one from the freeborn wife. The son of the servant wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise, but the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. In other words, these two individuals, Ishmael, born of Hagar, and Isaac, born of Sarah, represent really two ways of trying to approach God's will. Paul elaborates again in Romans 4, verse 19 through 21. He says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. In other words, there was a promise and God trusted him, depended on him to carry it out, knowing that he couldn't do it himself. And that really becomes a picture of the way that God wants to work through us and in us. That he wants us to depend upon him, 
through faith. You know, faith means trusting to do what God says with a willingness to act in cooperation with him. It requires more than just trust. It it actually requires us taking action. Notice that Abraham and Sarah both had a role in this, right? They had to keep trying. And yet God gave both the promise and the power for them to conceive. Also, faith in God begins where self-dependence ends. You know, what God was trying to do here was he was trying to whittle Abraham down to the point where he knew if this is ever going to happen, it's only going to happen through God. And God will often take us through a course to break down our self-dependence, this sense that we can do things without God in order to get us to a place where we can actually truly rely on him. And finally, God smokes out our self-reliance most of the time by making us wait. You know, we look at Abraham as a giant of faith, but that was in large part because he was waiting on this promise for 25 years. And so when you look at Ishmael and Isaac, you know, Ishmael represents human effort. Self-reliance, whereas Isaac, he represents divine power. Ishmael represents human reasoning. They thought to themselves, you know, maybe it's, it's through Abraham alone. Maybe, maybe God said it's from our household that this child is going to come from. Whereas with Isaac, it came from God's revelation. He spoke and told him specifically, no, it's going to come through Sarah. With Ishmael, there's a quick fix solution, whereas with Isaac, they waited on the Lord. So let's try to spend just a few minutes here drawing some lessons on faith from this narrative. I think the first thing is that God wants us to let go of our false sense of security and trust him to provide for us. Some of you are are at this place right now where you are clinging on to your security that you've built for yourself. And that could represent a lot of different things. You know, what God wants you to do is to let go of that and to reach out and to grasp the promise that he has to to take care of you, to provide for you, to give you the fulfilling life that you could never gain through this false sense of security. Secondly, God wants to carry out his will through us as we learn to depend on him. You know, there's a process here. He calls us to go, but then he also teaches us how to depend on him, how to rely on him. And uh, often uh, that's going to happen through waiting. God will make us wait to test our faith, to grow us, to help us persevere. And like Abraham, God calls on us to follow him through faith. You know, he, he says, I want you to trust me, to provide for you, to save you, to take care of you. I want you to, I want you to trust me. And yet, that invitation isn't something that God's going to force upon you. He's not going to make you answer his call. We have to answer it. 
In Revelation 3.20, Jesus speaks and says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anybody opens that door, they can come in and dine with me and, he, and me with him. In the ancient Near East, you know, whenever you would dine with somebody, it was a way of indicating friendship, a relationship. God wants a relationship with you. But you have to answer the call. You have to trust Him. You know, if you're here tonight and you don't know God personally, what God wants you to know is that He has made it possible for you to have a relationship even though you have problems. That you have things that create a barrier between you and Him. He has sent His own Son, Jesus, to come and die to wipe all of that away so that you can turn to Him in faith and receive the forgiveness that He freely offers. And the moment you do that, you can embark on this journey of trying to follow God. Okay. Thanks, God, that uh, you don't make us jump through a bunch of hoops to follow you. Thank you that you uh, only require faith from us. And um, I pray that we can draw from uh, Abraham's life and uh, figure out ways that we can uh, grow in our faith with you. And I uh, thank you especially that uh, you included that verse there in uh, Genesis 15:6 that uh, Abraham believed in you and you viewed it as righteousness. And... Um, Thank you that uh, you included that in the Old Testament and have shown us that really from the very beginning until now, that you've always looked for our faith. And so uh, we pray, Lord, for those of us who uh, may be uh, thinking about responding to your call to have a relationship, that they would turn to you in faith and um, forge that relationship that you desperately want to have with them. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.